social media and its 24-hour accessibility have blurred the lines of the schoolyard. Courts don't want to limit student expression or deter them from voicing their opinions unless absolutely necessary. But this creates a problem for schools who get caught in the gray area between discourse and distraction. I'm Jonathan Huerta. And I'm Rich Campbell. We're attorneys with the Kingsbury Law Firm in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome to The Legal Lunchroom. Each episode, we'll be looking at the laws that affect school boards, administrators, students, and our community. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're joined by education attorneys John Freund and Paige Gross. We're going to talk a little bit about student speech and some recent case law that defines how and when students should be disciplined for what they say. Later on the show, we'll talk with Bethlehem Area School District Superintendent Dr. Joseph Roy about the rise of student social media use and its impact on student speech. But first, let's look at what the law says. Today, we are joined by John Freund and Paige Gross. John is a founding member of Kingsbury and one of Pennsylvania's most experienced and accomplished education attorneys. And Paige is a rising star here at the firm. Let's dig into student speech and work our way into some recent case law that defines how and when students should be disciplined for what they say. So let me start with a very basic question. What does the First Amendment even protect? I think that many people will agree that the First Amendment is our most cherished of all the amendments. It protects our right to speak our mind. Uh, It protects our right uh, to exercise religion. It protects us from the establishment of religion. Uh, And it it protects our right to to assemble, to join organizations, to join parties. For school purposes, uh, the most important of these, of course, is the right of students to express themselves. So let me ask you this, John. Do students have full First Amendment rights on school property during school hours? There's a famous quote uh, from from, a Supreme Court justice that students do not lose their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gates. Uh, Having said that, uh, students rights in school are not equivalent to a citizen's right. So we're lawyers and we love case law. So let's talk the seminal case regarding a school's ability to discipline or regulate student speech. Uh, What is it and what does it say? I I was actually around when this seminal case happened, the so-called Tinker case. Back in the late 1960s, the Vietnam War was raging and uh, there was a lot of dissent, uh, just kind of like today, there's, uh, the country was split. Uh, and there was also a draft, which affected young people. And so the tankers, which are brother and sister, they, they showed up at school uh, one day with uh, black armbands to protest the, the war. They were disciplined for that. And they took their case all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, uh, for the first time, established that students do have First Amendment rights of expression and that schools could not uh, curtail that right unless that expression caused a substantial disruption of the educational process. Tinker has become the standard of uh, student discipline. It's the first question that's asked by the court in every student discipline case, was there a disruption caused by the student expression? So digesting that uh, a little bit, armbands 
aren't really speech. They're, they're clothing. So how does that relate to student expression? Well, there are lots of uh, things that uh, are not necessarily verbalized, but express an idea. Right. And there's no question that in the Tinker case that an armband, uh, a black armband meant disapproval or a su- you know, suggestion of grievance. So that was very clear. I think that we can think of a number of examples where something other than words, symbols, and their protected expression. Let me ask you this. Are there any exceptions to the Tinker rule? There are actually several exceptions to Tinker. Uh, one is the uh, so-called Fraser case. And the Fraser case is a case in which a, uh, a young man, a student, is making a speech in support of his friend for uh, a class office. And it was a very cleverly done speech, but was full of sexual double entendre. Mm, okay. And, of course, uh, back, in, uh, back in the day when Fraser was, you know, was giving this speech, things like that were not tolerated. Uh, he got in trouble. Uh, his case eventually went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that schools had inherent authority to regulate speech that is lewd, profane, or obscene. Okay. And so they can do that, the schools can do that without passing the Tinker test. It doesn't have to be disruptive. In fact, in the Tinker case, in the facts, there there was virtually no disruption. Very interesting. Uh, Paige, are there any cases you'd you'd like to add to that? I think there's a couple more exceptions. You have um, school-sponsored speech. So when students are dealing with a school-sponsored newspaper, school-produced newspaper, they're writing assignments that are assigned to them through the teachers. That is another exception to the Tinker case where there does not need to be a material disruption to the school environment, they can discipline that type of speech as well. I think there's another one involving pro-drug speech where students created this sign that said bong hits for Jesus and mm. they I've heard eventually of got disciplined for, for that phrase. Right. Um, so along with those other two cases, um, a school district can discipline speech regarding drug use and speech that promotes drug use without having to go through that substantial material disruption analysis. So let's jump forward a bit. Tinker was decided in 1969. The world has changed in profound ways since then. How have those same standards applied to more modern cases? In other words, has the analysis stood the test of time? Mr. John Freund here has some experience regarding um, these type of cases. There was a case where a student decided to wear a bracelet Mm. in support of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. What, What the court said in that case was that students have a right to expression where it is not patently lewd. Those listeners who remember George Carlin, and there was a a famous case with the FCC in which they banned seven dirty words. I I won't say them for our (laughs) podcast because I think we're we're rated double G. But the court said about this case that if the student expression uh, were patently lewd, then it can be banned. However, in this case, if it, the court found that bracelets were am, ambiguous as to whether or not they contained a sexual innuendo. Right. And they said in that case, if, if it's shown that there are political or social implications 
it, it can't be banned. So those are the multi-part test. You know, first of all, the question is, is it patently lewd? Is your, you know, is your, what's on your T-shirt? Does it say one of those seven dirty words? Then it can be banned. If it's ambiguous as to what it means, then the question is, does it have a political or social importance or significance? And if that's the case, that's protected. I think that's a nice segue. Uh, so from what I gather recently, the topic has moved away from on-campus speech so how has social media played a role in that? Can you walk us through some of the cases? And just speaking about social media in general, I think it's a tricky situation because there's so many modes of social media right. and they each do a different thing. That's a good point, Paige. And they also have the capability of having private conversations that aren't displayed to the public. So on Instagram, mm. you have private direct messages versus yeah, your yeah. public feed. Right. Um, same thing with Snapchat. You can directly, privately message someone, send them a picture versus posting something on your Snap story, which is public to your followers. So you have all these intricacies at play at once with social media. There was three distinct cases that came before the Mahanoy case that I think are noteworthy to make mention of. So you have the JS versus Bethlehem Area School District case. Okay. Um, and in this one, a student created a website regarding a teacher and um, it wasn't just making fun of the teacher. There was threats against the teacher. I think there was even a fund created um, mm. to put out a hit on the teacher. And in that case, the court determined, the Third Circuit determined that this type of speech was not protected. It did, in fact, create a substantial disruption in the case based upon the disruption it caused in school, but also based upon the effect it had on the teacher. Okay. The teacher had to basically uproot their lives yeah, and, yeah. and move on. Right. And use the uh, the tinker analysis. And I say as, a, as an aside, both uh, both my partner, Don Spry, and I uh, had involvement in this case. Oh, wow. uh, Don Spry was actually the hearing examiner. And uh, I later represented the, uh, the principal who was the object of one of these websites. The student involved was, was quite clever. And I think it was even before MySpace. It was actually a website, two, two websites wow. he created. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. The fact that there was a, um, a request for contributions for a hit list. Mm -hmm. And, and it, was that, it was that that really upset the teacher. In right. fact, caused her so much emotional damage course, yeah. that uh, she was out for the rest of the year. And that, that was the, the disruption Right. That the that the that the court found. There was two additional cases that came relatively quickly right after that, um, right before the Mahanoy case kind of was brought into the public attention. Okay. So you have Layshock versus Hermitage and JS versus Blue Mountain, and these cases have similar facts in which a student just took a picture of a teacher or an administrator and and created a parody account, okay. created a fake account for them. There was no mention of the names, no mention of where they worked, um, no pers really personally identifiable information. Um, they did take the picture off the district website and the districts did try and argue that that was school-sponsored speech because they used the district's website right. to acquire the, the pictures put on the website. But ultimately the Third Circuit held that this did not create a substantial disruption in the school. This was not a true threat against the teacher. And they ultimately came down and held for the student and said that the school district was not allowed to discipline that type of speech. Uh, if I'm correct, it was also significant to, you know, where that uh, speech was generated, which was right. off campus. Yes. Okay. And mm -hmm. so it's interesting that we had the first JS case, the Bethlehem case, uh, that was also speech generated off campus. Right. 
the courts find that, hey, that's a substantial disruption. You can discipline that. But, you know, as Paige described these two cases, courts now gone in the other direction, giving more protection to off-campus speech. That's interesting. So what I'm gathering is speech on campus and speech off-campus outside of school hours is inherently different. So my question is, how did the courts use this in their decision, and how has social media pushed the envelope of the tinker test? Social media, it's used around the clock 24 hours a day. So it's one thing to say a student can't use their cell phones while in school, but then it's another thing to say that a school can then put some sort of 24-hour surveillance on on the student's speech. Right. Um, and so I think that's exactly how the Mahanoy court came down, the Supreme Court. And I think what's, what's interesting to note is the Third Circuit initially said that the Tinker test regarding a substantial disruption does not apply to off-campus speech. However, the Supreme Court later came down, even though they did rule for the student and said that this type of speech was protected and that the um, school district could not discipline her for it. Hmm. The, the court made a statement uh, that you know, I've used in, in brief since the school has a heavy burden to show that uh, student speech that is off campus is uh, capable of being regulated by mm-hmm. the school. Okay. Uh, there are exceptions. And I thought right. If, yeah. if it's used for bullying a specific person. Targeted bullying. Right? Uh, if it's a true threat, I think Paige mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. A couple other exceptions. Online school activities, if there's been school security breaches. Okay. And again, if they're using some sort of district-owned computer. But yeah, the Mahanoy court and the opinion kind of outlined three characteristics of off-campus speech that kind of um, separates it from on-campus speech and a school's ability to 100% discipline it. So they noted a school rarely stands in loco parentis of the student when the student is off campus. So in loco parentis just means in place of the parents. Right. And then second, we have that regulations off campus creates this 24 hour surveillance of the students and the court does not want that to happen. And then also. Number three, the school has an interest in protecting the student expression, even when it is an unpopular expression, and especially when it occurs off campus. So I think the term that the Supreme Court actually used was that publics are nurseries of democracy and that mm. they wanted to protect that. I like yes, that. The nurseries of democracy, not necessarily civility. Yes. Uh, very interesting. So if we could dig into those exceptions that we mentioned a little bit further, uh, especially the the true threat. Have there been any recent cases that involved a true threat from a student during off-campus or off-school hours? And how is the school expected to respond in these instances? Well, I think there's been a couple noteworthy ones. Okay. One specifically, AF versus Ambridge. Right. And in this situation, the court actually held that it was a true threat and the speech ended up being disciplined. And So the facts of this case are there was a Snapchat group message with the football team of the school district. The the coaches were involved in the, the group message, and the purpose of this message, group message, was to schedule practices, sp- schedule weightlifting, schedule things to do with the team. And I guess um, two of the teammates got into some sort of fight or disagreement in the group chat and started sending pictures to one another. And one student was sending pictures of what looked like a gun. It ended up being a BB gun, mm. but but it, it did replicate 
what a gun looked like. The student said that he um, would personally attack the other student. He held a bottle. He said he would smash the effing bottle across the other student's face. Um, And it was specifically targeted at that person. Um, And so what the court ultimately held was that that constituted a true threat. And out of that case came a true threat analysis, which is separate from the substantial disruption analysis. And it's two part. You have to look at the content and the context of what is said. And you have to place a lot of emphasis on the intent of the speaker. Are they able to carry out what they're saying? Would a reasonable person believe that they would do these things? Is it a conditional threat? Is it political satire? Things like that. So in this J.S. Manheim case that came afterwards, it still involved Snapchat. However, Hmm. it involved a Snapchat message between two individual students. It was private. Nobody else could see it. But those two, they were sending Snapchats back and forth. They were making fun of another student saying he looked like a a school shooter. They were putting up lyrics of the student's favorite band, which happened to be kind of violent. So it was violent words. They made a video with the student in the background saying, you know, I'm going to shoot up the school and I'm going to kill a bunch of people. Basically, that's what it said. Mm. It was supposed to and it was intended to be a private conversation between the two. One of the students happened to take a picture of it and post it to their public Snapchat story. Okay, which eventually led to other students seeing it, which eventually led to the students showing their parents, which eventually led to the parents contacting the district about it. Now, in the end, the court ultimately held that this was not a true threat analysis. Hmm, that's interesting. They said that the intention behind these pictures were not to be made public. They were in between a private conversation. They interviewed the student that they were talking about. The student had no intention, no capabilities of carrying out these types of acts. So ultimately, um, the court decided that this was not speech that could be disciplined. Yeah, one thing in, in, in this area is true that uh, consistency is not necessarily a value that is carried through. In the Morse versus Frederick case, that the, the Bong Hits for Jesus case, the court was very clear that it was not the intent of the speaker that mattered. But as Paige, Paige just described, when analyzing a tr- whether or not a threat is a real threat, a true threat, is the intent of the speaker that matters. Mm-hmm. And I think once you get into a true threat analysis, I think that comes with some complications because it it comes with a definition from the Pennsylvania Crimes Code, you mm-hmm. know, and then you get police involved right. and then and then you have investigations outside of the school. What do we do now? And, and in some of these cases, you know, you see situations where the police do get involved. They conduct an investigation. They determine that the student is not a threat, that school can um, continue the next day. Students are welcomed. And in some cases, in situations where the police and the local law authorities have said there's no threat, school can continue. And then the school district later sends out, you know, an automated voice message or a, an email to the parents, you know, stating that there has been a threat made. But they they do not mention that the police have determined that there's no threat or, or something of the like like that. Right. Sometimes courts have come down and said that it was not the actual student speech that has made the disruption, but it was actually the school districts who ended up making the disruption. So there's a fine line when you're talking about true threats because it, it comes with, you know, a statutory definition. It comes with uh, police involvement. So I think at the end of the day with this with these type of intricate and 
um, you know, almost confusing situations, you always want to talk to your solicitor about what the next step should that be. That is a good point. And uh, Rich, I, I think that the, the state of the law now, if you can sum up uh, with regard to a school's ability to regulate expression, uh, speech of a student, is that it, it very much is protective of a student's rights. And it is also very much aware of the the boundaries, the limits of school's ability to, you know, to to regulate what a student says. And it's recognized that, you know, school has authority to the extent of the end of the schoolyard or, you know, the bus trip or something like right. that. But that when a student is not within uh, the pale of uh, school authority, you know, the student's a citizen and has rights just like any other citizen. And the courts said that you know, schools do not have the prerogative to invade that. So this this really is an evolving standard from, from what I gather. Uh, Paige, would you say there are distinguishing factors between these cases? Or like John said, is, is, is it sort of evolving and, and uh, not so clear? Tinker still kind of stands the test of time. You'll always have that substantial disruption analysis when it comes to student speech. But I think once we start going into regulating a student's ability to speak on social media platforms outside of school on the weekends, like John said, the the school districts are going to have a heavy, heavy, heavy burden to be able to reach out um, and regulate that type of speech. Just like the court said in Mahanoy, they don't want the school's standing in loco parentis, and they don't want to put a 24-hour surveillance um, on the students. Right. Well, I think we've taken a, a really nice journey from Tinker to the modern age, I guess you could say. I would uh, open the floor to my my two wonderful guests here. If, if you have any concluding uh, comments or remarks about where this this area of the law is, is headed. I, I don't know if we are involving in a good situation or not. We're certainly involving into a a situation in which First Amendment rights seem to have greater respect, but uh, that is at the expense of uh, a more civil society. I have to agree. If you have a question, always talk to your school solicitor about what the next steps and what the next move would be in these types of situations. Well, I think that is excellent advice. And John and Paige, I think that ties everything together for today's episode. That was truly a substantive and informative discussion, and I think we did a nice job dipping our toes into a complex and evolving area of the law. Up next, we get another perspective on these pressing issues from Bethlehem Area School District Superintendent, Dr. Joseph Roy. Welcome, Dr. Roy. Thank you. It's great to have you here today. Really happy to be here. Thank you. Now, Dr. Roy, how long have you been in education? This is my 37th year as an educator in public schools. And uh, how long as a superintendent? This is my 13th year as superintendent in the Bethlehem Area School District. Now, in that time, I'm sure you've seen uh, a whole host of of radical changes. Uh, But could you ever have imagined the rise of social media? Going back before social media, which really wasn't that long ago, if you think about it. um, You know, most of the issues, if we had issues with what students are saying, had to be face to face. Sure. You know, or maybe one person to one person over the phone. Um, but with the rise of social media, everything is out there in public. Oh, sure. And, and, and the records there, right? Before there wasn't a record of everything that I think that's the hardest thing to, to make sure, you know, students understand is that when you put it out there, it's not coming back, even though there might be a delete button, somebody else might've captured it already. Yeah. I think that there's kids can get become 
too relaxed with communication that way with their friends on, and, uh, you know, in normal communication. And then if they put out something inappropriate, they're just too comfortable with it and they don't realize the full ramifications. Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, of all the schools and superintendents that I work with, I got to say, you're the most active on, on social media. I'll, I'll give you a plug at B-A-S-D-S-U-P-T. Um, what led you to the decision to lean into social media? So, and really, I, I'm personally only on Twitter. Our school district is on all the social media platforms now. But going back a few years when we started, we were, we were looking at Facebook. This is how quickly things change. Um, we were looking at Facebook, uh, district Facebook account. But then the concern was, well, somebody has to moderate that. Like somebody's got to be watching that. Who's going to do that? And if you don't allow comments, then it's really just a web page. Uh, sure. So we felt, well, we don't really have the people in place to uh, manage that. So uh, Dr. Silva, Jack Silva, our assistant superintendent, and I thought, all right, let's start Twitter uh, accounts. So that was new to us. Uh, I have a daughter who works in the media world in New York City, so she guided me on uh, some of the steps. And my first goal was to have 100. I thought if I could get to 100 followers, that's big. Um, and um, from there, it just took off. Um, and really because of snow, I mean, if we're honest about it, because of snow days, sure. uh, kids wanted to, and parents follow for snow days. And uh, I built the audience a little bit by making sure the first word on snow days came from my Twitter account, nice. not from other sources. They followed him immediately after. And then from there, everything has just taken off. You know, now we have all the social media pages, we have all the social media sites, and we have a couple different people that manage them. And then beyond that, you know, there are so many teacher Twitter pages. Um, there are so many uh, school pages. Um, it's it's too much to manage individually, but we have to count on people to use it when it's for professional purposes, use it correctly. Sure, sure. So uh, I have to ask, where does the uh, Dr. Roy official uh, Twitter account stand now in terms of followers? What are you at? <laughs> 13,500. That's right. You're, you're basically an influencer at this point, Dr. Roy. <laughs> so um, turning to students on social media, right? The courts are really clear that, you know, a school's purpose is to foster an environment where students are encouraged to form their own opinions um, and create their own thoughts and ideas. But how do you walk the line between that and having to step in when speech or conduct becomes an issue? You know, what, what's the difference between when does, it, when does discourse become distraction? That's a great question and obviously not a bright, clear line. Um, we will often, if we have a concern or a question, call our solicitor and double check to make sure. Um, but, you know, in general, we want any speech, whether it's online or in person, to be respectful, to treat people with dignity. We don't want hate speech, obviously threats of violence, um, threat bully, online bullying. And sometimes it's the students might legally have the right to say what they say, but that doesn't mean it's, it's the correct thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times the resolution is not a legal or a punishment resolution because they have rights. It's more conversation with the student, with the parent and say, Hey, look, you know, you really need to take this down. Let's talk about the impact of it. And our experience is the vast majority of time. If there's something out there on social media, that is offensive. Um, if it's a threat, we're reporting it to the police. Um, but if it's, you know, an offensive or negative comments about another naming an individual, um, you know, we, we try to have the conversation 
teach it as a learning experience, have the student remove it. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a, that's a great approach. And, you know, several years ago, we're not talking about it today, but several years ago, one of the major issues was sexting among students. And um, a big part of that was education. Uh, It was shocking how little uh, students really had the the, the grasp of, of what it meant once they hit that send button. Um, So I think you're absolutely right. The education component is, is crucial uh, to, to really kind of uh, wrangling in some of that, that speech. So um, now how has the district tried to, uh, combat bullying on social media. Same approach? Yeah, same approach. Um, when it's brought to our attention, you know, it's a activity that's happening online outside of school hours. Um, and it's really got to be managed through conversation with the person posting it, with the person who's being bullied and the parents and trying to resolve the issue uh, kind of in the same way we would um, within the school, except mm-hmm. part of it is you need to take that down. We can't necessarily make them take it down, but we want to get to that point conversation wise um, that and, and usually the parents are not are supportive to like, look, that's got to go away. Sure. Understood. Now, when we're talking about social media and, and potential issues, do you find that these scenarios are connected with a specific forum over another? Well, I know I'm behind on Twitter. Like kids have moved on for the most. I, the, you know, kids still follow, but they've moved on and I haven't. Right. <laughs> so that's why we have uh, Instagram and, and looking at TikTok because that's things, they migrate. The usage migrates when we're talking about students. It's kind of generational. Parents will still use Facebook and we have parent Facebook groups for various schools and so forth. But it's, that's a constantly changing topic. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, well, Dr. Roy, you, you've been our first guest, I can tell you. If you start a TikTok, I will dance right next uh, to you, whatever the TikTok challenge is. I will not be starting a TikTok. <laughs> um, well, ultimately, you know, do you see social media having more of a negative or a positive consequence on the district? Overall positive. Uh, I think that uh, I always describe our social media approach as it's a robust approach. It is on various fronts, various platforms. Um, and it, there has never been such an opportunity for schools to get the good word out about what goes on in schools. Um, and again, tons of teachers have social media accounts. Um, if it's tied to their professional, we ask them to make it clear it's their Mrs. So-and-so BASD um, or the school accounts. But we've never had the opportunity to show the community and parents what the great things that are going on in the school the way we can now. And it's literally dozens and dozens of posts every day coming from our schools. Um, I mean, a lot of sometimes I'll see something that happened in a third grade classroom at a school. Be like, oh, that's really cool. I'm glad that's going on. I'd otherwise not even know it in such a large district. So it overall for us has been a, a positive. Um, when um, and I think it the the transparency that it allows, like going through COVID, sure. um, we did lots of short videos, keeping people up to date. And I received such positive feedback um, because people felt they, they, they knew another update from me was coming soon, that it was going to be transparent. I was just going to tell them what I knew, tell them what I didn't know. Here's what we're trying to do. I'm calling on the community to come together. Um, that's a, that, I mean, like, that's just something that a school superintendent didn't have in their grasp in the past. And I think we have been able to uh, raise uh, the reputation of the school, of the district, uh, through social media because we're just getting out there all the great things that happen. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, personally, I have a five-year-old, and 
I don't, uh, he's just started kindergarten and I don't recall uh, my parents ever feeling that level of connectivity, that level. I mean, I, I know what his classroom looks like. I know, you know, on any given day I can see, you know, him drawing in his classroom because a, a photo is posted through one of the, one of the different platforms. So uh, certainly uh, something that I see when used properly can be a phenomenal tool for, for districts. So, um, well, well, Dr. Roy, that, that's all I have today. And I, I really appreciate you coming out and being, as I said, our first guest. Well, thank you very much. And uh, good luck with the podcast. It's going to be great. Thanks for joining us today for The Legal Lunchroom. This podcast is a production of King's Prize Education Law Practice Group. It is meant to be strictly informational and does not constitute legal advice. Should you have any questions about our topic today, please consult with your local legal counsel. This episode was researched by Attorney Paige Gross and produced by Steel Pixel Studios. Our theme music is by Don Lotney. If you like our show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also visit our website at kingsfry.com to find more education law resources and programming. See you next time on The Legal Lunchroom.